done a few rehabs in Auckland. They took me to NA meetings and stuff, and I'd continue going to NA for a bit, get a bit of clean time up and, and relapse because I just I wasn't ready, like just wasn't committed. And so when I came down here to that, uh, that rehab, in Wellington, I only knew one person down here, like a mate from like a long time ago. He was going to NA meetings down here and I was like, oh, I don't really want to do this NA shit again, you know what I mean? But I did. And basically I built heaps of really healthy, stable relationships down here. And then I relapsed, did that twice. And I guess the issue then was just me not acknowledging the fact that I'm the problem. I'm the one with these mental health issues, stuff I haven't dealt with. So I'm just coming up two years, nine months clean from everything that's including alcohol, everything aside from prescription drugs that I'm prescribed. <laughs> <laughs> that little caveat, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. We, we appreciate honesty. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Today we corridor with Tommy Doran about drug use, prison recidivism and ways to move forward. Tommy is an example of someone who has been through the revolving door of methamphetamine use, crime and the prison system. Tommy has just completed a university degree in criminology and works for an NGO Just Speak, advocating for justice system reform to break the cycle of youth crime and a shocking 70% recidivism rate. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I just want to ask a little bit about your past. We've connected over TikTok and I see a lot of the stuff that you're talking about in the criminal justice system and you share a lot about your own stories and your own experiences with the criminal justice system. Could you tell us a little bit more about what happened in your youth? Yeah, for sure. I'd really have to backtrack to like my childhood. So for me, I, like I grew up in an upper middle class white family in West Auckland. I had a relatively normal childhood as far as normal goes i was never abused or anything like that and i never had to struggle i always had i always had the things i needed the clothes on my back a roof over my head and food on the table but if i, I was always taught that if i wanted anything extra i had to work for it so i wouldn't say i was spoiled but i was definitely privileged so as a child i had a really hard time sort of focusing at school and i like oh, i just found it really hard to do my work found it really hard to listen, to concentrate, and I felt really shit about myself. Like, I, I felt like I was stupid and didn't feel validated by the degree I could do my schoolwork or mm. perform academically. I looked outward for validation, so I did that by being a clown, acting the fool, you know, bullying other kids, bullying teachers, just trying to get that acceptance because I didn't feel good inside. That's just something that stuck with me throughout my schooling. Um, Interesting, because yeah. a lot of the stuff that we hear, the stories that we hear is usually from the side of people who've been bullied, rightly or wrongly. That's the story that we hear. And obviously it's not a nice thing to experience that but no. it's quite interesting to see the story of someone who's been the bully it's not easy to talk about because i'm not proud of it but i was a child what can you do i try to these days i try to make amends for my past by helping the underdog you know there was a lot of envy around kids that could 
sit down and do their work just didn't feel good mm. for myself so i felt the need to act out and mm. some weird logic around that was going to make me popular yeah it's quite interesting to get into the psyche of a bully right because mm. if we don't look into that then we'll never figure out why it happens so do yeah. you think that there's anything that would have changed your behavior if things were done differently in school well i feel like for me and i speak to this quite frequently so i don't like to play i don't like to play the victim well what's happened in my past has happened it's made me who i am and i'm grateful for that but if i had the diagnosis that i've been diagnosed with at age 30 if i if that had been recognized and dealt with accordingly when i was younger then Potentially, I wouldn't have gone down the track I went down. Who knows? Can I ask you, what was the diagnosis? Uh, ADHD. So yeah. I've only just been diagnosed age 30, like not that long ago, about a month or two ago. Does it make the things that you did when you were younger make a lot more sense? Oh, it does. It's really yeah. it's really validating, eh, to be honest, because I just thought I was stupid. I just thought yeah. I was stupid and was never going to be good at anything. Yeah. So pretty much what I do to get attention and to feel validated as I'd rebel because I couldn't focus on my schoolwork. So I'd do whatever I could to rebel against the teachers, rebel against my family, rebel against just society in general, you know? Eventually I got to an age where the thing to do to rebel was to use drugs. The first drug I used was cannabis and I used that at age 12. I only used because I wasn't supposed to. Like I got no no enjoyment out of it at all. It was, it was awful. Like, <laughs> it, it was just because it was times. a naughty thing to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I stuck with like from intermediate school through to high school. So what you're saying is if we told you that the naughty thing was to study, you'd study. <laughs> yeah, 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 probably, yeah. Okay, yeah. so what you're saying is we need to make it like cool to study. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do in a way with what I'm doing, though. Yeah. Yeah, because today I think it is cool, you know. I got to age 15, so it was like beginning of year 11, and oh, like I was just a real, just a real handful. Eh? For the teachers. Yeah, like, but at that stage, what's interesting is when I got to high school, I stopped bullying other kids. There were a couple of years where I got bullied, but most of the time it was like me. But in high school, I, I don't know, I just kicked back a bit. I was still a little shit, but I was just nicer to people. And basically at like age 15, I was given the, because I was just constantly getting kicked out of class and shit and walking out and whatever. So I went to my dean's office and she's like, look, Tom, we're going to give you an ultimatum here. We're going to give you the opportunity to go find yourself a job or a course and you can leave on your own terms. It'll look like that on your record or we're just going to kick you out. So they gave me the benefit of the doubt because they did see potential in me because there were times where like I knuckled down or I came across something I was interested in and I just smashed it. Classic um, ADHD. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, textbook, eh? I don't know how it took this long to yeah. get the diagnosis. And that's not easy either, but I'll get to that later on. But yeah, so left school, started this chef course. Never something I pursued, but what something I did find at chef school was alcohol. And that was like the first substance I picked up that I actually really enjoyed. And in a way, I guess I feel like it slowed me down and slowed my head down and gave me mm -hmm. this warm sort of cozy feeling that I didn't have throughout my life because I always felt out of place or like I didn't fit in. Alcohol was the first, my first love. Was doing that for a while and I left the course, got a job, so I had a bit of money in my pocket and then another friend of mine who I like grew up with, he had left school recently. He had a job and stuff and he had like recently started using meth. Yeah, he was like, oh, are you keen to come try some of this? I was like, yeah, all good. And that was my second love. How old were you at the time? 15, 16. Yeah, yeah. How easy was it for you to access meth? Real easy, yeah. yeah. 
And it just got easier over the years because it was real expensive back then. So I was just using a little bit on the weekends, like whatever I could afford from my pay from work. But like I was staying awake for days and was just getting unmanageable. And, and how much did it cost at the time? Back then, it was like $100 for a point of a gram, which is like jack shit. But and how long would that last you? In the beginning, it would keep me up for a night. But the thing is with meth is once, you, you know, it's, you're never satisfied. You just want to, you just want to keep hitting it. And what was it about meth that made it so addictive? Just the way it made me feel, you know, I guess I can relate this to my experience with ADHD. I'm aware that Ritalin is a form of amphetamine. However, it's a regulated one. So methamphetamine is like something that's not regulated, a hell of a lot more pure. Ritalin is methylphenidate, which is slightly different. It's oh, a non, slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a non-amphetamine stimulant, but it's still, okay, yeah. yeah it's still similar, a stim- but It's a stimulant. Yeah, it's a yeah, stimulant, yeah. 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 But there's like Dixie, I know there's like dexamphetamine and stuff. Yeah. I think I was getting mixed up with that. So the meth made me feel like real composed, like really focused, which is a state that I really struggle still to this day to get to naturally. Yeah, that, I think I feel like that's a big part of why why i loved it so much eh? kind of you feel normal almost yeah, for a little bit yeah but the thing is with meth it's like if you use heaps of it and stay awake for too long it has a reverse effect where you're like how i normally am but times a thousand so twisted it was yeah just a real mess but that was my life for like 12 13 years there were times where i was in employment for and I couldn't really um, maintain employment. Yeah, because my habit, the more I used, the more expensive my habit got and a nine to five job wasn't gonna pay for it. And basically like when I use the stuff, I don't sleep. That I might be okay like on my first day of a bender with no sleep to go to work and pump shit out. But after that, I'm just unsafe to be around or I'm off in my own little fairy world, you know? And what was your social circle like at that time? Was everyone around you doing meth or did people know you were doing meth? Yeah, most people did, yeah. I've never been one really to keep it a secret. If I'm using, you'll know. I don't know. Something shifts in my brain when I mm. start using that stuff and I, I've got no shame at all. And did people in your support circle tell you, like, you know, that it was wrong or that you, oh, know, yeah. you shouldn't or anything? And what did that what did that make you feel at the time? Yeah, for sure. But back then it was, I was like, oh, you don't know what you're missing out on. Like, this, this stuff is me. This is me. This is my identity. This makes me feel better than any of you could ever make me feel, you know? That's honestly how I felt. So like I gave up on trying to maintain employment because I wasn't supporting my habit. Like Mm. my habit came first over everything. So I gave up on that, started hanging out with shadiest sort of circles, learn how to steal, learn how to angle, just learn how to be a criminal pretty much, you know. That was me for a long time. So during that time when you couldn't keep a job and then you started undergoing criminal activity and stuff, how many brushings did you have with police? Oh, many. I've lost count. And gradually, like, it went from community-based sort of sentences to eventually jail. Yeah. Were they related to drugs themselves or was that related to the, the stealing and other no, stuff? No, it's basically just the, like, the, yeah, the obtaining of material things to acquire drugs, but never anything for, like, possession or or anything like that. Mm. And how do you feel about the things that you've done in the past? Like, how do you feel now about it? Yeah, like, I, I regret it, you know? Like, um, obviously, I'm not going to let it determine the rest of my life and hold me down sort of thing. Instead, I sort of try to use it to empower myself and others. Some of the things I used to get up to to feed my habit, I've got a lot of friends these days who own small businesses, have gone out on their own as, like, independent contractors, or they're just friends who have been just burgled or whatever in general, like, had their things stolen that they've worked really hard for you know and like my go-to is just judging the people who have done it and then i have to stop myself and be like that was me who am i to judge these people so yeah it's not 
it's not easy i suppose so i'm just coming up two years nine months clean from everything that's including alcohol everything aside from prescription drugs that i'm prescribed <laughs> <laughs> that little caveat but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. In 2017, I'd been out of jail for about six months. I was living with my bro where things just weren't good. So my mum reached out to me and sent me a link to this treatment center in Wellington. And it's weird because like in the past, the times when I've wanted to clean up and stuff, they've come when I've had no money, run out of drugs, just coming down, like basically just all shit. Like I'm not, I didn't actually want to give up. I was just like, just coming down and all broken and blaming everyone and poor me shit. Because it's not easy, is it? No. Because I guess you're probably in this sort of pre-contemplation stage. But yeah. even so, if you are thinking about quitting meth, like how easy is it to get help? It's a good question. Like if you want to go to treatment, a rehab facility, if, that, if you really feel like that's what you need to be locked away from the world for a while, then you're going to be waiting a while. The important thing about my story is I didn't get clean my first attempt sort of thing. I've been to numerous rehabs over the years. At those times, I was going there to tick a box to some degree. So did you feel like you didn't quite have your own buy-in? Yeah. Doing it for someone else, you weren't doing it for yourself. I was d doing it for the courts, doing it for my family yeah. or whatever, but I just wasn't fully in it. In yeah. a way, I feel like I was just I was quite young, immature still, hadn't really yeah. figured myself out. To the degree that I have now, you know, I've got such a better understanding of myself and what makes me tick. There was no way I was going to get it back then. Just, I just, that's how I feel anyway. And was it easy to get drugs in, when you were in jail? Uh, yeah, it was. I personally didn't get into using in jail. Couldn't stand the idea of being locked in a cell, not being able to sleep, you know. What really else is there to do in a cell other than sleep? I'll get sleeping pills and stuff like that. That's what I wanted to use in jail, not meth. What am I going to do? Just lose my mind. Mm. Yeah, I don't understand how people do that. But And yeah. what was like the key thing that flipped the switch for you to be motivated to actually quit? So in 2017, my mum reached out to me, said, here's this rehab down at Wellington, private rehab. And at the time I had money, I had drugs. And normally when I had those, I'd be like, fuck that. I don't want, I don't want a bar of it. But something obviously in me was like, oh, I've had enough of this shit. So like I said, okay, yeah, all good. Sign me up. If I'm going to do the rehab thing again, I'll, uh, wanna, I'll try and do it in another city. Initially, I thought that, so I thought that just leaving, I thought Auckland was the problem in that. I just need to leave Auckland. Everything's going to be okay, you know. Moved down here, did this rehab. The rehab was really good, you know, I, I rate it. Um, and what was good about the rehab? Compared to the other rehabs I went to, a lot of the other rehabs I went to had like a real sort of institution feeling to them. Whereas like a this mental one, health institution kind of thing. Yeah, even like jail. Like it even reminded right. me of jail to, a, to an extent. A like, bit trapped. Um, yeah. Yeah. How did you feel yeah. about this one? What made this one so good? So it's like a it's like a home. It's like a family sort of buzz. Like they only take six clients at a time in the main house. That was cool. So basically, what my first rehab that I ever did introduced me to, which was, was backtracking like back to when I was twenty. So I did the bridge program in West Auckland when I was twenty. So they in, they introduced me to twelve step meetings, um, like the Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. At that time, the alcohol and drug treatment courts had just started up in Auckland. Lots of people were getting out of jail into rehabs, like people who were similar types of offending to me. There was a lot of people I knew from my same circles and stuff, and we were all going to NA meetings, and it was real mean. 
But, and like I had a mean time, but that was when I learned that I could have fun. I could enjoy myself. I could connect with people and I, I could do all that without needing to drink or use drugs. It planted a seed for me, but I still wasn't entirely ready. Like I still had so many reservations around, oh, I don't want to give up drinking, you know, like meth's my problem. Everything else is all good. And I just thought that meth was my problem. I forgot about how fucking crazy I was when I was a kid. So once I took the drugs away, like realized i have ruthless anxiety like i still have the same issues i had when i was a kid i just completely forgotten about them and i just had no coping skills just didn't know how to deal with life on life's terms like when shit went south when things didn't go my way even the littlest thing you know i can just lose the plot and just turn to drugs that sort of continued for me like i did a few rehabs in auckland they took me to na meetings and stuff and i continued going to na for a bit get a bit of clean time up and, and relapse because i just i wasn't ready like just wasn't committed and so when I came down here to that, uh, that rehab in Wellington, when I got out of that rehab, I set up shop here, posted up in, in Lower Hutt to start with, the Patoni. And I only knew one person down here, like a mate from like a long time ago. We're still mates today, but he was the only person I knew when I moved down here. But he was going to NA meetings down here and I was like, oh, I don't really want to do this NA shit again, you know what I mean? But I did. And basically I built heaps of really healthy, stable relationships down here. And then I relapsed, did that twice. And I guess the issue then was just me not acknowledging the fact that I'm the problem. It's not Auckland. Auckland ain't the problem. I'm the problem. Like I'm the one with these mental health issues, stuff I haven't dealt with. So I came down here on no conditions. No one was making me do this, which is what was unique about this time as opposed to other times. My last stint of clean time, I got almost a year up. And I started a degree, I got a job, and I got to a point where I was like, oh fuck, I just want to use, I'm just going to use drugs and alcohol, and I'm just not going to do crime, I'm not going to associate with other drug addicts, I'm just going to go to work, go to uni, and shoot meth in my arm every fucking weekend, you know, like, just that insanity. Sounded like, like a good idea, but yeah, obviously yeah. not at all. No, 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 like trying to lie to myself and say, oh, like I could just do it socially. There's no social aspect to the way that I use. Like I'm kidding myself. The interesting thing about what got me clean this time was that I didn't need to get locked up. I didn't need to lose everything again. Basically, I just like, I came to a crossroads around the time of the first level four lockdown in 2020, at the start of 2020. And I was like, oh, all right, I can't bullshit myself anymore. Things are getting out of control. Things are getting unmanageable. So I'm going to have to make a decision here. I either carry on the way I'm going and just pretty much may as well just move back to Auckland and just go all in and back into the old circles, the old lifestyle, probably end up dead or in jail, or I can knock it all on the head, stop lying to myself and just continue on this path that I'm already on. And that's the decision I made. Like I, I chose to go, go with my gut. That's what's led me to where I am today, to be honest. Well done. That's Thank an you. amazing achievement. Yeah. So obviously you've been through a lot over a really long time. How do you think things could be made better for other people who are in a similar situation? Because we know that meth is a huge problem in New Zealand. Using meth means that they need to spend more money on meth and to make enough money to fund meth, people will resort to crime. So how could we as a society make things easier for people to get off meth? So I think all funding into these grassroots organisations, people who are trained in mental health and addictions, stuff like that, they should be prioritized and those facilities that they work in should be prioritized. We need to put more money into them. There's some great initiatives going on, like I said earlier, the alcohol and drug treatment courts, but the fact of the matter is we're not even scraping the surface. And a lot of people will just say it like, oh, like people will say, oh, serves them right, whatever. This is how I always respond to that. Is the solution not to decrease crime or is it to keep locking people up? 
like in building more prisons. My idea of the criminal justice system and the prison system was that people are supposed to come out fixed, but evidently it's not working. Because how many times did you go to prison yourself? Oh, a few. And what was that experience like? Because I've spoken with only a handful of people who've been to prison. And the feeling that I get is similar to what you've just explained. I spent the majority of my jail time on remand in Mount Eden. And I don't know how much you've heard about that, but like a lot of people are spending like up to 23 hours a day in their cells due to understaffing and overpopulation. And like they're saying it's because of COVID, but this shit's been going on for since like... 23 hours, that's... Crazy. So literally in this sort of what, like three by two meter cell with a bunk bed. yeah, With a cellmate usually as well. That can get quite hostile. And they're saying that it's because of COVID and shit, but it's been going on since 2011. And like in these situations, how much did you have in terms of rehabilitation while you were in prison? Like nothing. Nothing. There was no programs for you for trying to upskill you or reintegrate you. On my sentence lags, like where they sent me somewhere else, that wasn't as bad. But the people that are doing short stints they don't bother with them too much like people that are doing like two years or more more who are like looking at who have to go up for parole they'll sort of get prioritized but even then they're still waiting for ages they've got different programs in different prisons they've got like the drug treatment unit in perry and i think it's some and some other prisons as well so there's the dtu where like you Mm -hmm. go in a unit and it's supposed to be facilitated like a like a therapeutic community which is what a lot of our rehab programs are based on. But in my opinion, just the whole environment is just so counterproductive and just people are traumatized and shit. Like people have been going in and out of the system for so long. For many people, it's what's made them who they are today. They might've gone in for some sort of minor petty crime when they were younger. And then now today they're like some like seasoned career criminals. And you want to try and rehabilitate them in that same place where they got sick in the first place. Like Like a revolving um, door, eh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So some people would argue if these are criminals, they deserve to be punished. And that's why they're in prison. Why do we need to like throw more money at them? What do you say to that? So I don't, I don't want to see crime in my community. Like I'm not pro crime. Is what I need to get across to people quite often, surprisingly. But I want to see results. I want to see people rehabilitated and, and moving forward and not reoffending. Because, but at the moment, the way that we're locking people up and they're getting out, they're doing this, you know, the revolving door again, like you said, like you say. You know? <laughs> we want it to be like a one way door, like mm. in and out and never back again. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm a big fan of what they do in Norway. I highly recommend anybody, like even on on Netflix, their World's Toughest Prisons documentary on held in prison in Norway. And it's actually really interesting. So what they do is they try to keep prison life as normal as possible, as like similar to the outside as possible. Because what people forget is that the punishment is losing your freedom and your liberties and your ability to just walk around, go see whoever you want. Like that's the punishment. Like people shouldn't be getting borderline tortured in prisons, locked up for 23 hours a day and declined visits and things like that. Because what I, what, what's my opinion is that like, if you literally treat people like animals, you'll probably exactly. get people acting like animals. So if yeah. we treat people as human beings, maybe we will get people be like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll <laughs> treat yeah. you with a bit more respect back. So what have you? What else did we learn from what they do in Norway? So basically people have their own sort of like common area they can come out into. They're not locked down. They wear their own clothes just so they're not like stripped of their personality and, and whatever and placed in these like prison clothes. Because I, in my opinion, rehabilitation, we, we should be empowering people and encouraging people to learn who they are, not like stripping them down to nothing. 
and reducing yeah, making them, them better people rather than dehumanizing them yeah. exactly so yeah and just their whole sentence all the prison officers are all trained social workers and their whole routine is mapped out for rehabilitative and educational pre-employment programs mm. and things like that it's, that's all they do in there so and, they're like trying to help people stay connected yeah. and integrated to society exactly. and they're already programmed so that once they finish their times up they can come back to society and hit the ground running and yeah, then like because right. what are the things that are drivers of crime you've done criminology what are to you what are the drivers of crime money drugs poverty yeah so um, let's see if we make it hard for people to get money and keep it being easy to get meth what are we gonna get but more crime yeah keep telling people you can't do this but you can do this like people who come out of prison who yeah. are judged and have all these barriers and limitations oh, placed right. on them like it's really hard to get insurance it's hard to get a mortgage it's hard to get a job hard to get housing how can we expect to rehabilitate when we're like putting all these barriers in front of them it just makes no sense to me but i feel like after a certain amount of time people should be able to like have their convictions concealed from third party organizations everyone has a place everyone has a passion and because of some mistakes you made when you were younger you shouldn't have to get out and be told like oh you can never do this unless you're like high risk sex offenders and stuff you can't have them working around vulnerable people and people yeah. will always argue that so i have to put i have to put that out there i don't think that's okay but i feel like somebody who went to jail for some minor drugs charges or minor offending or whatever they should be able to like move forward and rehabilitate How did you end up studying criminology? Initially, I went to university to study psychology and criminology. Psychology wasn't for me, but I just found a lot of passion in criminology. I found it aligned a lot with my personal beliefs and my personal experiences. I'm sure you guys had lectures or sessions where you guys were chatting about stuff and you're probably one of the yeah. only people who actually experienced the things you guys were talking about. Yeah, not for sure. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, like it was really validating because I saw several injustices while I was held, particularly on remand in Mount Eden. But I just thought, oh, I'm just biased. Of course, I'm not going to be happy with the way they operate here. Like they've taken me here and put me here against my will. Of course, I'm going to feel that way. But what I found when I got to university was like, there's all these academics and like advocates, you know, were like speaking out against, and they know exactly what's going on, telling my story. Like they're telling my story and my people's story. Like they're saying like, oh, this is happening and it's not okay. And I'm like, oh, so it wasn't, so it's not actually okay. I never came out feeling like a weight had been lifted and uh, like I'd been rehabilitated, like I'd been fixed. Yeah. <laughs> so what were the things that you'd learned while you were studying that you were like, oh man, that was wrong? The fact that 70% of people who come out of our prisons go back, because that's something I noticed was like, why is it always the same people coming in and out? Why aren't people getting out and staying out? They're Māori are targeted and overrepresented within our prison system. In your studies and your yep. research, like how are Māori targeted in police and justice? Through like racial profiling, those sort of like low income communities, particularly South Auckland, are over-policed. A lot of the things, so like we say, how crime is becoming like a big social issue in New Zealand is talking about every other day on the news. The feeling is that a lot of people want more police, the small police that, you know, do you think that's ever going to really help with reducing crime? 
Nah, I don't think so. Not unless the police are getting social work training because the majority of the police call-outs are to like mental health issues or like domestic violence. They're not really, they're not really qualified to do that. That is the issue, isn't it? Because police only do four months of training in New Zealand, which is like a world record for some of the shortest police training programs in the world. And it's just unfortunate because I think although police are very necessary, I think, you can't, I don't think we would ever be able to have a society where we have no no police. I think that perhaps we're putting our our money in the wrong places because like you say, social work is the important thing and what we've seen is that actually investment into social work and investment into mental health is dire and Mm. it's just been cut away and all that's done is creative accounting to look like we're saving all this money when actually what we're doing is putting more and more pressure on police and being like, hey, yes, let's just hire more police. It doesn't make any sense. It actually takes three years to get a nurse who will then have to train in the mental health institute to get enough training and experience to then work in the mental health crisis. That's at least four, almost like five years, one mental health nurse. All this work that should be done by qualified professionals who've had the training in mental health and social work is actually being essentially dumped on police, which is actually really unfair on police. Mm. And we're putting that pressure on them to do this job. And I know that there are plenty of well-meaning police officers who go into the job being like, I want to make a difference, safer neighbourhoods and all that. That kind of stuff mm. but I can imagine it can get demoralizing when you do see like the level of poverty and crime and if they're not giving their skills to help people and also don't have the help in the community I can just imagine people getting like a more and more negative view on society as a police officer exactly yeah yeah, no, and I get that too. And it goes the same with, with corrections officers. I've heard people talk to corrections officers who have come in and said, I wanted to come in here and make a difference. And they've just had all that ambition beaten out of them. They're just like, nah, I don't give a shit anymore. They're like, I just want to go home safe to my family sort of thing. And it's just, burnout is just everywhere because we keep putting money in the wrong place, funding like the wrong things. I'm of the opinion that we can't, out police nah. issue especially if you just say oh if you had a police on every corner yeah. in like central suburbs then nah. then we'll be safe they don't have superpowers they can't detect when crimes happening in most cases they just turn up after a crimes happened and in some cases people don't have a very positive experience with them like after they turn and it's up. also like a thing of a transference and counter transference right so even if you have like a police officer who's well-meaning Mm. This person who's doing a crime, they probably have had negative experiences with a police officer and then exactly. so they're probably going to assume that this next police officer, they're also going to have a bad experience. So we'll just interpret everything as bad and then treat the police officer poorly and then the police officer will have a bad time and then they'll just assume that the next person is also going to treat them. It's just like the sort of like vicious yeah. cycle. People are traumatised by the police. It's time to bring in some people that know what they're doing when in dealing with people with post-traumatic stress disorder and addiction. It's hard on the police, man. Yeah. Like because mental health is so poor in New Zealand, we have very little preventative stuff or early intervention in mental health. When I was working in adult emergency, we often had people who had like mental health crises. Either they've become psychotic, or they're harming themselves, or they've said that they're going to kill themselves, and the police will have to bring them in because for some reason we don't have enough capacity in mental mm. health to have mental health people actually yeah. look after these people. And that's where the money needs to be put. In my opinion, that's for it. That's what we need to prioritise. If 
If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So 53% of the overall prison population is Māori, while only Māori only actually make up 16% of the general population. So the fact that they're taking up over half of our prison population when they only take up that small minority of our whole general population, that's just really disturbing to me. What do you say to people who say, oh, it's just because Māori do more crime? That's something that people often say. Yeah, and I mean, at a glance, that's what it looks like, but it's honestly not that simple. So the prison boom started when... We had our turn towards neoliberalism in New Zealand. Basically, we went from being like a nation where everything is state-owned and everybody knows where they stand, and then out of nowhere, all these multi-million dollar corporations and start buying like our, our most basic systems. Is this in the 1990s? 1984. 1984, is that when it all started? Yeah, oh. yeah and... From then on, there was like a massive boom in the prison system and it's kept going up since then. It actually started before that, but this was significant because... Uh, what were the main things that were happening in the 1980s? Because one of the things that I was reading about was that in 1991, that's when we had huge changes in terms of neoliberalism. That's what mm. I was reading. And then one of the main things that was happening was our state housing system was completely cut and slashed. Previously, the rent that you paid for a state house was just 25% of the household income. So it was yeah. just tied to whatever money you made. And we had quite a big stock of like housing and home ownership was actually really high at that time. And then we had this massive change where social housing became essentially market value and then they sold like a whole bunch of like housing and then it became really hard to actually buy a house because yeah. people couldn't afford like a mortgage and yeah. I think since then our home ownership rates actually gone down since then mm. and do you know this thing called a Gini coefficient? No. Gini coefficient is like a measure of income inequality. Prior to 1991, New Zealand was actually doing better than the OECD in terms of income inequality. Yeah. Since then, we've gotten way worse and we just we can't compare to the OECD. We've just gone worse. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's like where it started. That's where all that insecurity started, eh? Like people didn't know where they stood and... People didn't have like access to secure yeah. housing. And if people don't have access to secure housing where they know that they can live there, afford to live there for a really long time, as long as they want to, then how can people even build community? Because I think you were saying before that one of the things that helped you actually get off meth was having the strong relationships exactly. with other people. Exactly. That, that's the thing. When things, when other things start to go pear-shaped and then there's people running around doing crime, it's almost as if everybody just goes straight to blaming the people that are doing crime for all of their problems. Even though for a lot of people, it's not actually directly affecting them. I empathize mm. with the ones that it does, like 100%, but it almost seems as though that's the way people are trying to put it across and trying to like push for these. We need to bring in the big guns. We need to... We need to enforce harsher penalties on these people. But for that to work, like, you've got to assume that these people even have the ability to think before they act and, like, actually think about what the consequences are for their actions. That's my argument about that. I don't believe that longer sentences or harsher sentences are going to prevent crime from happening. It's going to help to lock people up for longer. But, but those people are going to have to come out at some point, yeah. right? Yeah, but even and I then guess it's... it's not... yeah. 
But even then, it's after that, it's their children, it's their grandchildren, it's generational. Like it's just never going to end, and they just there's just going to be more and more of them. And uh, it's just it's not a long term solution. Just trying to it's like just trying to sweep it all under the rug and forget about it, out of sight, out of mind. What do you think about organisations like with like mongrel mob partnerships? Personally, I support it. You would have seen I put a TikTok up about it recently, but I got quite a lot of kickback about it. But I don't care, to be honest. My opinion, like, it's harm reduction because a lot of these guys, they're never going to leave the gang. But what's more dangerous, a gang member or a gang member on meth? From what I've seen, a third of these people have stayed clean after graduating. I think that's great. It may not sound like a lot to somebody who doesn't know anything about drug and alcohol rehabs, but that's actually good numbers, like a whole third. And I just feel like, who are they going to listen to? They're going to listen to their seniors in the club. That's how it works. That's who they're more likely to listen to. And that's their community. Exactly. That's their community coming together. And I think it needs to happen for other clubs as well. And I don't know, people will say, oh, you're just getting them clean, but they're still doing crime. Not all of them, mate. Not all of them. It's just one part of the big puzzle. Yeah, exactly. So I want to ask you about your work with Just Speak. So what is Just Speak? So Just Speak's an advocacy organisation. We work to campaign and lobby the government to have certain policies, mostly around criminal justice and, and prison policies, to be altered or changed, which to a degree that would like ultimately see a lot more people getting everything they need, you know, getting a chance, getting opportunities to flourish in life and in their communities. We did a podcast. It was released in September. It's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It's called True Justice. So it's just a five-episode podcast. Every episode is a different theme. This is one big project we've done. One of our campaigns we're working on at the moment is uh, is regarding the youth crime that's been quite rapid in the media. Yeah, is it really that much higher than it is has been in the past? So I've seen the statistics that Jacinda Ardern was presenting, which indicate that it's actually lower than it used to be. But then I've also heard people talking about how it's easy to just manipulate statistics to make them say what you want and how that's because supposedly like less of these offenders are getting prosecuted and they're just getting set free. So it's so those statistics in particular aren't adequate to interesting actually paint the picture. Yeah, this is just things I've heard. You, but ram raids, I know for a fact, years ago they were getting being pushed on the media through the media like they are today. A lot of it is just using it as a political football, to be honest. But there's also a good chance that it has increased. And what I try to promote is that it's not new. I mean, stop letting the media fear more, <laughs> like stop. Yeah, yeah like, it's like these issues are like a decades long issue. Yeah. and I don't think there's any way that we can do anything that. It's like short term that's going to make a huge long term difference. Like we need to have short term interventions and long term interventions if we actually want to do something about it. Mm. Because I guess one of my concerns is that we may end up with a government that wants to put in boot camps for young people. And my concern is like just like with your story is that when you wanted to change, it had to come from you. Like you had to put that work in and want to change and I've talked to people who are like oh I think boot camps are like really good because of my experiences that some of those people who really wanted to change like they made changes and I'm like great if went into a boot camp of some sort and was like hey I need to change my ways that's not okay great because those people have buy-in but if you don't have buy-in I just don't think it will work no 
know people who have been through boot camps too who did really well but they went there on their own accord sort of thing yeah i don't think militarizing them's the solution what you think they're dangerous now and i think a lot of people underestimate how the boot camp thing is that whole idea of these kids need tough love but i think what a lot of people underestimate is like how much tough love these kids have already had and how that's probably part of why they're acting out like this because a lot of these kids may have come from a troubled home exactly, yeah. and had their own form of tough love yeah. By tough love, we mean physical abuse one way or another. Yeah, or even just neglect. It's not their fault at the end of the day. Yeah. If you had $5 million to spend of taxpayer money on the thing that you think would help the most in terms of reducing crime, where would you spend it? I'd put it in some community-based rehab programs and establishing new ones. But it yeah. sounds like not every rehab is good. So what kind of rehab? The ones where I know people who work at them. All right, okay. Yeah. And do you want to tell us a little bit more about your recent diagnosis of ADHD and how that shaped how you feel about your past? Yeah, no, nah, it's, it's good. Eh? Like, I'm really lucky I have a boss who's really understanding. And I started some medication. I told them about my past and that, so they started me off on one that's like a non-stimulant. So it's called Stratera or Atomoxetine. I was taking it for a little while, and I just felt like I wasn't doing anything, so I stopped taking it. I went back to my doctor, and he said, I want you to increase the dose, but... The first four to six weeks, I was real tired, fatigued, felt sick, and then I stopped taking them, but now he wants me to take them again, so I wanted a referral to go to, to back to the psychiatrist. GPs can't prescribe ADHD medication mm. themselves, like you have to go see a psychiatrist. So my appointment costs like 700 bucks, but I was on the radio after the True Justice podcast got released. It talked about how like, oh, I just can't afford it at the moment, like it's just not a priority. And this guy rang up Radio NZ and he had a late diagnosis himself. And yeah, he offered to pay for it. So when I got the initial diagnosis, but that's another thing that I'd like to advocate and campaign for, you know. It's a part of my experience in my life that I'd like to share with others and use to help others. Because at the end of the day, I could sit here and say I'm grateful for where I am and where my journey's taken me. But at the end of the day, I could have not been so lucky. I could have fucking died out there, you know. I didn't get abused when I was a kid. I don't have childhood trauma, but I have trauma from shit that's happened to me out there, you know. What's in your future? What's in my future? Ooh, I take it a day at a time. Like, I'm, pre I'm pretty happy with where I'm at today. Like, I, I'm going to finish my honours and probably continue with my master's and then maybe go try to get a PhD as well. That's awesome. It's really awesome to see that somebody who's obviously been through so much can still come out on the other side despite, against all odds and do amazing work like you. So I really hope that you continue on that way and continue your advocacy. And I'm just going to ask you one last question. So what is your guilty pleasure TV show or movie? What's the thing that you're like, oh, I wish nobody knew this about me? Oh. <laughs> Um, probably Shameless, maybe? Shameless? What's Shameless about? Oh, have you never seen it? Oh, it's good, no. man. It's about this dysfunctional family in Chicago. What is it about Shameless that you love? Just all the chaos, just all the mayhem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Classic ADHD brain. <laughs> yeah, 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 hard out. I don't have to focus too hard on it. Like, I just I already know what's going on. Yeah. But um, one thing I want to say that I think is important because, like, I say I want to help the youth. But I also say that there were times in my past where I just wasn't ready and nothing was going to change that. But I feel like planting seeds is the key. It's always going to come down to a degree of self-responsibility and self-accountability, whether or not we successfully rehabilitate. However, we can also make it a lot easier for people and we can show them where we're at when they're ready. I wouldn't have found it as easy to just walk in those rooms and feel at home 
if I hadn't already done it over the years that I had been in and out, feel that was important to, um, to mention. Thanks for sharing that, because we know with things like drug addiction and alcohol, it's never going to be like a one and done situation. It's mm. so rare for someone yeah. to not have a relapse. We call yeah. it relapse like it's, like it's unexpected, but we really need to realise that actually it's hard. So thank you so much for coming on Revolving Door Syndrome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.